Hello, everyone. It is Tuesday. I am Tuesday. I am Sherman. And welcome to the show. What are we talking about today? Well, we're talking about uh, Dungeons and Dragons Third Edition, um, but I figure this will probably just evolve into a cavalcade discussion of just D and D in general. Yeah, in all likelihood. Well, actually, wait. I should probably go get my books. All of the manuals uh, the, for the core rule books for three point five have these uh, really three. like. Oh yeah, this is just three. They, they have this like really sick sculpted look to them. Yeah. So there's kind of like this. Eye of Sauron looking thing in a medallion on the front and the monster manual is kind of made to look like a cyborg dragon yeah yeah it, it does it's got like a scale pattern in the center and it's got like a, a kind of steampunk rosette going on yeah the binding on the edge really looks like those are like door hinges mm -hmm. like you can unlock this tome with a key on the side and then it'll give you its knowledge. I thought there would be maybe something different on the backside, but it is the same. Well, I accept instead of a locking mechanism, there's like a clasp yeah. with runes on it. Player's Handbook is a classic clasped tome. It's got a all manner of jewels and a blade on the front. Yeah, this one, you don't need to really unlock it. It just has kind of like a, uh, a little pin. Yeah, um, yeah. With a chain on it. Like Tumblr. Yeah, but I guess like more accessible. I would say that's probably because there's no forbidden knowledge in that one. Yeah, yeah, probably. It's a player's handbook. Oh, and the locking mechanism on the back on this one is actually, I think, a little more uh, complex looking than it, the... It's definitely more ornate. Yeah, yeah. The Dungeon Master's Guide, of course, under solid lock and key here. Um, yeah, although like... it's kind of the least interesting of the three on the front. Yeah, I think the like the the lock here is cool, but other than that, it's it's pretty pretty unadorned. But I guess that makes sense for just you know like shit. Wait, that's sick. So there's this key on the back, but like the the head of it. Yeah, the little teeth of the key. It's super intricate. Yeah, it it looks almost like a motherboard, like a computer chip Absolutely. with with the gold inscribed into it the style for this edition very i, I don't know it's, it's pretty gritty and and gooey it's pretty good yeah it's i'm mostly familiar with fifth edition and that's a lot more airbrushed i mean not just in the art style but like the art style lends to that kind of feeling this is starting to get there i feel but this is definitely a lot pulpier it kind of remind, reminds me of like warhammer roleplay okay or fantasy roleplay or whatever they call their their TTRPG. Well, because it was initially war just Warhammer, mm -hmm. and then Warhammer 40k is the sci-fi stuff. Oh no, 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 I mean like because I know there's a like a tabletop roleplaying game separate to the war game for both. I think. Oh. Really? I know uh, 40k's is called like Dark Imperium or Dark Heresy or something like that. I think it's Dark Heresy. I think you're right. Um, I th yeah, I, it's Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay is the name of the, uh, of the TTRPG for the other one. Okay, you do get a sense that this was made in, like, 2002, 2005-ish from the weapon page, because there's shit like, uh, hang on, wait, there's some pretty ridiculous shit on here, like, what about the Dire Flail? It's a flail with two heads? It's just a very cartoonish page of weapons. Pretty wonderful. I'm looking up the dire flail now to see if that actually existed. I don't know. I guess it's not as unreasonable as I, I thought it might, but it's still a little silly. Because, like, flails definitely existed. Um, 
yeah, but uh, according to this Google search, the dire flail never existed. Because <laughs> yeah. it just seems such an unwieldy weapon. No, yeah, I mean, a flail, you like spin it around and one spins, but how do you... And then, oh, maybe it's hitting you, you spin it around and now it's hitting you in the face. Maybe you're supposed to like wield it like a bow stave. Like do some ninja shit with your hands? Yeah. I or, mean, you or, would... or maybe it's like supposed to be the size of a stave and it's a two-handed weapon. That could work in a fantasy world, but if... not <laughs> any historically based one. No, for sure. Um, maybe if a character, like, held the chain. It would make more sense if it's like nunchucks, but with a third grip in the middle. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if just one of those was a ball with a spike on it. Okay, I guess. That that would work better, I think. <laughs> Most realistic historical parallel. What's a, what's a slang ham? Or, oh, no, siangam. No, 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 I'm reading in the text here. Oh, okay. Singam or halfling siangam. Yeah, um, there's only one sentence for that. Uh, the halfling <laughs> siangam is for small monks. <laughs> Rules were pretty solid back then. But yeah, no, so the art style in these kind of... It's pulpier. Yeah, I, I haven't looked at a lot of the first edition stuff, but I know it's very much in that style of... Um, the first edition stuff, the the earliest stuff there is, is just completely copied from, like, comic books. At least in part. That checks out. Oh, yeah, this is... Yeah, yeah, not even, like, when they passed when they had painters. Like, the sketchy stuff. This, this looks a lot like something out of, say, a Conan the Barbarian comic. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, yeah, the classic painting that they've redone a million times of some dudes stealing uh, the statue's bejeweled eye. Yeah. And there's always a lizard, like a dead lizard man on the altar. That monster manual cover is really beautiful. I actually had to become kind of involved with, like, a little bit of D&D &D history. I've forgotten it, mind you, okay. <laughs> since then. Um, I was in a production of She Kills Monsters. When I was studying in college, I studied theater, big surprise. <laughs> but I played the main character's boyfriend who, like, doesn't understand D&D &D at okay. all. Whereas in real life, I was actively running a D&D &D campaign. Like the biggest D&D &D nerd there. <laughs> yeah, while, while I was playing. And pretty much nobody else in the show had ever played before. And I, and I was... And you were the only one who didn't understand it in the show. Yeah, exactly. It was nice. great. So, no, I... Yeah, I'm familiar with, like, all of this art because I... Looking it up and kind of figuring out what some of the major campaigns were at the time, and then I just completely fell off the map with D&D around the time where I stopped having friends. Fair enough. <laughs> I went a while without playing D&D after I got out of this really awful campaign. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this dude that uh, me and my friends know. Uh, was running Curse of Strahd. Very nice, clean fifth edition module. Okay. Uh, pretty. It's a it's a big one. Um, there's a lot of branching paths, and it, there's a big focus on like every run of Curse of Strahd being unique, and it's built so that like the players and DM can leave their own mark on it. 
Now, our DM was a real, real stickler to the rules. Um, we had played with this guy for a couple of years, and he's just a terrible rules lawyer. And he, 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 uh, he ran this campaign for a while, and he wanted, for some reason, to run it by the module, like by the book, even though that's not what you're supposed to do with Curse of Strahd, because the module is literally like, do your own thing. So does it say, like, are there notes for the Dungeon Master in it to be like, hey, throw your own spin on this? Or... I mean, pretty, yeah, pretty much. Like, okay. It, because all of the notes are fairly bare, but are really good to build off of. I can't remember it well enough to think of an example, but Curse of Strahd is a, is a pretty unique campaign. It's, it's honestly the only one of the, of the like, prepackaged modules that I know of that I can really recommend. Okay, yeah. I, I mean, I've heard good things about it. I've just never, you know, interacted with it, really. It gets pretty insane. Um, I've actually played it twice, and I remember the first time I, the first time I played it was the first time I played D&D. And we played with these three guys who had read all of the 5th edition books, like, cover to cover, knew every single way to, like, manipulate the system, like... Every single, uh, every single trick of the, I forget what the word I'm looking for here is. Like how to exploit the rules instead of just yeah, use them. Essentially. Uh, all of their, yeah, min-max is what I was looking okay, for. Okay, like, yeah. All the tricks of the min-maxing book. It ended in horrible chaos. We were like weeks and weeks and months off of the actual module. It had just evolved into a bunch of bullshit from like their previous campaigns. All of our characters died. Um... <laughs> But in this version, I don't know. It was just a shit show. I went through, like, four characters. My first guy I went in with, he died in, like, five minutes. I don't remember who he was. Then I made this uh, this halfling named Fergus. Fergus McSnake um, <laughs> was, is, is, like, the biggest bastard I ever played. And we, we had a pretty good party, just not a good DM. Uh, there was... Golden Arms. He's just kind of the cornerstone of the party. He was played by uh, this this uh, this older guy, coolest guy I know, father figure to half the group. We had one more person who dipped out yeah, at the first sign of trouble and made the right choice. <laughs> if like, I if like I had a... my friend Avery here, he could talk for hours about the the many crimes of of our DM. <laughs> so so you had one guy just Shaggy and Scooby do it. Yeah, uh, yeah essentially. And then the rest of you were just kind of stuck there. Yeah. One bad thing can make really anything or can make the whole D&D campaign just go off the rails because it's such a collective effort. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what like what was going on with your DM? Well, he is a very he's so particular. He's he's a very big stickler to the rules and so he always wants to win. He wants to win D&D. And even though he's the DM. Oh, God. Okay. And so he would buff monsters in the middle of combat, buff bosses because he didn't want us to win. Very heavily, you know, like limit our story options. One of those DMs who, who pretty much punishes like anything fun. So was he like a rocks fall, everybody dies type of person? A little bit more devious than that. Uh, I remember this one fight we had with Strahd. So it's a couple things. Lack of creativity, excessive uh, knowledge of strategy, and uh, like how to win at tabletop games, 
So, like, he really understands, like, 5th edition combat. And, like, an infinite willingness to justify it. Like, he just has... He, he, he can just keep going. There's no winning an argument with him. Because even if you get, like, a, a point in against him, and, like, he actually, you know, you kind of call his bullshit, he gets, like, really offended, and he gets all sad. And so you gotta sit in the room with this asshole now. Um, but this one fight we had with Strahd, so we were in this monastery, and we had just beaten the boss there, so we were all, like, burnt to shit. My character uh, had died during that fight, and had been brought back to life. Um, and so in comes Strahd. This is in the module. He's supposed to come in and kind of fuck with the players for a second and then dip. He bursts through the window. And in his narration, um, the broken window was supposed to be our narrative cue to jump out the window. Except he just kind of introduced it when we walked into the room. You know, before a vampire started attacking us with a million dogs and his, and his henchmen. Yeah. Uh, so we don't really catch that. We kind of stay and try and fight him. And he just kind of has him hang out under the stairs where we can't hit him. And has a bunch of dogs and, you know, like, whatever henchmen distracting us. Yeah. And so my character dies again, but for real this time. It's it's just kind of a shit show. It was a pretty painful campaign. I stuck with it for a really long time. But... Yeah, like, how long were you playing this? Oh, shit. It was like... Eight months. It was like an eight-month-long campaign, and I quit before it was over. Did it ever end? It did. It did end. And people stuck it out. Uh, two people stuck it out, yes. Okay. Well, I mean, kudos to them, I guess. Yeah, for real. Well, because Will was, a, like, a first-edition player. So he was used to all of the rocks fall, you all die bullshit. <laughs> yeah, That's yeah. how he likes to play d, &D. <laughs> he was He was used to the system working to actively just yeah, yeah. break down <laughs> the player. See, he, he's a golden player. There's nothing that can get him. <laughs> okay. And uh, my, friend, my friend, I don't know how he did it. I, I honestly don't know how he did it. Because he was more upset by everything than me. <laughs> it could have been just like a spite thing. He honestly. He also did really like his character. Which is pretty fair. That reminds me of something else that this DM did. So we were told to write backstories for our characters. Oh no. Because the encourages that. You're okay. supposed to use the backstories. He did not use our backstories. He did not even touch our backstories. Avery wrote an incredible backstory. You know, he, he put a lot of effort into his backstory for his character. Yeah. And his character is like the, you know, this undead king. And so there, there's just a lot, there's, there was a lot of potential there for like, you know, old rivals from his past or, you know, like there's a bunch of, you know, interesting arcane rules for how his character's unlife worked. But no, he, he never did any of that. Just nothing. God, that. Very shameful DM. That just makes me hurt from like a writing perspective. Right? Cause. I mean, God, it, I'm going to bring up Chekhov's gun. Okay. Uh, if you introduce a gun in the first act, it needs to go off in the third act. Yeah. All right. Absolutely. <laughs> so, like, if you're attempting to make these just grand backstories, why wouldn't you use them? No, good narratives, even, like, massive ones. Like, fuck, I bring up the Wheel of Time all the goddamn time. But all the time, <laughs> it's meandering. That story is very meandering, mm -hmm. but pretty much everything is brought up again. 
Oh, yeah. I've only read the Jordan stuff so far. But all the stuff that's left at the end of book 11, you're assuming that it's supposed to be covered still. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Becoming a DM really was the thing that got me into writing again, or made me want to keep writing again. Becoming a DM made me made me want to world build, and that kind of expanded my artistic liaison. See, my problem was, I wanted the guys that I DM'd for to have fun, mm-hmm. generally, so I would throw impossible things at them, but I would make it so that they couldn't necessarily, like, lose unless they really fucked up but it would feel like they were gonna die like all the time yeah yeah that's perfect (laughs) one time i had this group of guys level one fight an abominable yeti this is in fifth edition but that's like a level 10 monster yeah yeah um it took them like two hours of real world time (laughs) to do this and it power leveled them straight to level five nice but like every single one of them thought that they were gonna die oh yeah like every (laughs) that's perfect but so so having that and instead of just being like yeah you're gonna die now you're dead now you're dead (laughs) now you gotta you gotta leave them hanging for a second yeah my problem was that they would always like i was still trying to craft a narrative Mm. and they would as players do, just be like, yeah, but I want to go over there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I would have to pick up the story and, and move it over it there. Over there. <laughs> I uh, I used to run, uh, I think I ran the most D&D uh, in high school. I was like the perma DM back in those days. I had a couple campaigns. I had this one that was just Warhammer 40k. Um, that but I didn't get very far with. But with Dungeons and Dragons? No, just it, it was just Warhammer 40k, but I've like plagiarized it. Ah, I see. No, yeah, the 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 influence of D and D's rules has never really held any sway over me. Its rules <laughs> okay. or lore has never never held like a single ounce of control over me. Kind of like you and music theory. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing holds sway over me. I am bound by no law. So I did this, uh, like, post-apocalyptic campaign. Or I did a couple of those. I did one, and it devolved into a sci-fi campaign. The crux of the story was this little character I made. So the original one-shot was me and my friend Avery and our other friend, uh, like, holed up in Avery's apartment. And I have them make two characters. Avery makes some robot. Our other friend makes some guy. And I make the crux of the story this little, like, two-foot-tall plant creature with a huge boot on one foot. The implication being that he grew out of the boot. I love that. Um, and his name is Boot. A very fitting name. Our friend's one guy's character. His name is Vlackskin. Um, our friend has a very incredible skill for making uh, words that you can't say. Okay, so so just some real eldritch stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, he's kind of hard to play D&D with because you just can't hold his attention. But he's something of a mastermind, I'd say. Avery made this, this uh, like assassin robot named uh this one was dynamis um and so these two tools are tooling through the wasteland and they come across this like bandit settlement and you know they tool around in there um when they find this circle of bandits all beating the crap out of this little two foot tall uh plant man and so they they rescue the plant and they scuttle to another city it's a pretty dry session of a one shot yeah but at the end of it um Avery's character dies, and Cedric's character just barely manages to live. And then, about a, by, I think by a month later, 
I had somehow managed to take this into space. By about two months later, Cedric's character had become like some sort of hyena demon. Still named Flashkin. Okay. <laughs> Avery got another robot, became like the best friend and father figure of the little plant. We added our, fr uh, our other friend and he played this like warlock who was like a priest of the worm. And so there was this like horrifying astral worm. Okay. Um, that he worshipped. And there was a couple times where he, like, transformed into a giant snake and just straight up ate dudes in the middle of combat. I think once he got big enough to, like, leave the ship and be his own sort of, like, body in the ship combat we were running. Eventually, I started revealing, not very subtly at all, that Boot was supposed to be, like, psychic in some way, and he had some, like, connection to uh, to some planet or place he was supposed to go to. And so I started leading the campaign <laughs> just by, like, psychic impulse. <laughs> okay. And I never finished it. Really? No. Hmm. How did you want it to end? I think, I don't know, they were supposed to get to, so Boot was always like, the great tree, the great tree. Um, and so they were supposed to get to the great tree, and it was supposed to be like, you know, some temple or monastery with like a tree symbol. And they get there and they find like some, you know, some arcology living there. And there's like, you know, in whatever central temple, there's like some sarcophagus that I actually didn't, re I thought a bunch about it, but I don't really remember what I had planned. So there was, some, was supposed to be some kind of big bad they accidentally awakened somehow. What if what if Boot was the big bad and he infected the the tree and you had to fight him? That would be that would be really good if Boot like yeah yeah, yeah if he just like straight up gives it grayscale and like takes it over. Yeah. That'd be pretty fun. That would ruin Avery's life. He loves that character. <laughs> I, I mean, what is a DM supposed to do besides <laughs> make the players suffer? <laughs> My problem is a DM is I always get too wrapped up in planning and then I stop doing the planning and I, I the campaign just fizzles out. Ah, uh, I see. So so you're able to write the first and second act but you can't write the third act. Pretty much. Okay. Yeah. Well, don't feel bad. A lot of people can't write the third act. Yeah. I'll S get there someday. See all of Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> He never has any idea where his stories are going. I respect that man for just his sheer idiocy. <laughs> I don't know how he has that many books. Well, okay, do you want to know his writing strategy? What is his writing strategy? Um, He writes 2,000 words a day. Uh-huh. Every day. Okay. Even on Christmas and his birthday. Mm -hmm. Like, he never takes a day off. And he says that you need to have any book, even a long one, should be written within the confines of one season. So that's three months. Okay. And the, so the first draft needs to be done. If you start it at the beginning of winter, it needs to be done by spring. Okay. Uh, and, you know, so Fair on and so forth. Because according to him, if it takes you longer than that to write a story, then the story will get too muddled and you'll get bored with it. Fair enough. So you want to have it done within this amount of time and then the second draft needs to be done in the season after it all right because then you, you're still fresh with ideas but you're improving on something that's already there instead of like trying to come up with more new stuff yeah that's fair i think yeah i get i always get trapped in a, an endless cycle of trying to come up with new stuff 
Yeah, that's that's a, that's not a bad that's not a bad strategy actually. Yeah, but also at the same time he writes at least two thousand words a day. That's an ass kicker. <laughs> yeah, I, I do really miss the time when I could like draw every day successfully. I think his strategy is when he gets to the point where he can't continue any more with the narrative thread that he's working on. He's just like. Well, I'm sure I'll come back to this. Yeah. And then he switches to something else. <laughs> like in the drawing of the three when in Eddie's bit where he just has like eight different character perspectives. Mm-hmm. That was probably what was going on. Yeah. So anyway, third edition. We don't know anything about third edition. The contact sense of those books are a complete mystery to us. We know it's got cool art. <laughs> So you don't know any of the rules for it at all? You know, it would be a really fun exercise to try and make a third edition character. What, like right now? I got the, I mean, let's let's see what the character sheet looks like. Oh, hey, they have a filled out one, actually. This is, this is convenient. Alrighty. So there's this little basic, uh, just human, neutral good fighter uh, here in the back. And that man does not look human. Uh, fun thing about this character, actually... Is they use him a lot, um, but they use him specifically to kill. Like, this is the character they draw, like, falling into traps all the time. Oh, my God. Regdar. <laughs> okay. Regdar, the neutral good human fighter who apparently has died thousands of times. Do you uh, have a set of RPG dice? I think, so if, if, I think trying to figure out how to make a character would be very uh, encumbering. But... I think we could figure out how to make an attack roll. Okay. I don't have a set of RPG dice. What? But I can probably look a, up a dice roller. Yeah. But so let's let's describe Regdar. This guy, why is his skin so green? Uh, he is a man of the wilderness, obviously. Yeah, because when you live in the woods too long, you start becoming an ent, apparently. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, he's got kind of nasty boy face. Yeah. So a lot of the times in 5e, components for spells and, like, what you're carrying doesn't really matter, at least in the campaigns that... I've played, this seems um, like it would. Definitely. No, yeah, it looks math as hell. Mm-hmm. I once played with a guy who's very much into the, who played 5e like you might play second edition. Yeah, I've had a couple of those guys. And so they, they're really just caring about the dice rolls and the numbers and all that shit. Yeah. I'm just trying to find us just any basic enemy to do our uh, attack roll against. Let's see. What's There's that a- one? Got an ethereal marauder. Is that or is that an etter cap? No, the etter cap is right there. Ooh. Because I know that's an etten for sure. Alrighty. Oh, um, another thing that's very fun about this this edition is that all of the playable races are also in the monster manual. Okay. Especially for stuff like spells and like uh, in-game monster stat blocks, mm-hmm. this edition is much more expansive. There are like 15 levels of the summon monster spell. Oh, nice. specific rules for each of them. Okay. It's incredible. Because one of the problems that I had with 5e was that there, well, one, very few of the races are in the monster manual, but two, there were monsters in the monster manual that you could use as races, Mm -hmm. but the stats to have them be used as a race weren't in the player handbook and weren't in the monster manual. So you had to like dig around online in like expanded books to figure that shit out (laughs) like the whole crux of fifth edition is like danned wiki and just everything that that all of the like homebrew content that has been made to expand it yeah 
but let's see here. So I've got the dwarf stat block. Let's take a look at uh, Regdar's nemesis here. I think it might have been drawn by the same artist as Regdar there. Yeah, uh, they look kind of similar. We got a classic helmeted dwarf. He's got like scale mail, a shield and an axe, um, and taking a look at his stat block. Okay, okay. So, so imagine like your stereotypical uh, front man for a new metal band. Yeah, he does look kind of like Fred Durst, doesn't he? Yeah. Wearing plated shoulders and a uh, like Roman style helmet. I believe he's in half plate. He's Actually, I, we can check that. No, he's in scale mail, okay. um, which I think in the context of third edition means like scale shirt and a helmet. Yeah. I remember seeing it in the like inventory section, and it, it's sort of like the most slapdash approach to uh, plate armor that you can get. Like, there's scale mail. All right, yeah, yeah, I see that. This tells me a lot about the dwarf. Um, I don't really know what, like, I don't know what a lot of this stuff is really supposed to do, but I do know that his AC is is 16. I know what to do with that. Well, his reach would be how far he can swing with his sword. Yeah, okay, so it says, yeah, his his face reach would be 5 foot by 5 foot by 5 foot. Okay, which so. Which makes sense, because if he was attacking with, what weapon does it say he has? Dwarven war axe plus 1 melee. So... And his uh, war axe does a d10, so uh, that would make sense. Yeah, so attacking with an axe. So on the grid, he's able to attack in the squares around him. So you. So this makes a lot of the like base assumptions that fifth edition also makes. Yeah. But it just comes to it, it comes to that conclusion in a much more complicated way. Okay. So let's see here. I'm trying to make an attack as Regdar, and I know I need to roll. 16 to hit dwarf so i need to figure out my my advantage here okay this is actually really useful then there's a total attack bonus slot on each of the, uh, the weapon spaces that you have on your character sheet which is nice but ragdar kind of has shitty stats i guess he is level one i got a 15 which means i missed there we go we've done it we've made an attack as a third edition character wonderful how riveting <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot for nothing i mean isn't that like a lot of role playing? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow, I just did so much. What do I get? Nothing. <laughs> you didn't roll high enough. Uh I play in this campaign right now where we have this uh this magical fey house. Okay. Um that eats other houses and becomes larger and more house. So so like it gets more rooms yeah, or? yeah it gets more rooms Alrighty. Uh, i think it's up to three stories now with the basement it has six legs uh that it walks around on and it has this entire like kind of inner bowels that my character the lizard has started to inhabit Alrighty. uh i think i've told you before about the lizard a little bit but he's this uh disgusting old knight who's apparently over a hundred years old even though he's a human <laughs> okay uh, worships dragons i've told stories uh, in character of the lizard's father who is called the salamander um and the salamander wore a cloak made out of cat skin which i think is just like the most psychotic emperor thing you can do yeah no that's because okay if you're wearing a cloak made of say like lizard skin or like yeah. or like stitched together salamanders and you're called the salamander that makes sense i get it but you are wearing a cloak made of cat skin 
Which implies something horrible that you have done. <laughs> exactly. And also, how did you come to be called the salamander then? If, if it's not your cloak. <laughs> if you were, because it's very much like Nordic fighter rules. Like, the yeah. the great deed you have done is now your name. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, or like some defining characteristic of your body. Like, we were talking about, and by the way, there's a lost episode because all the data has been destroyed oh um, yeah yeah a couple of weeks ago we we talked about the blade itself but logan nine fingers oh yeah yeah he's called logan nine fingers because his ring finger on his right hand got chopped off in a fight yeah exactly. <laughs> so he has nine fingers that's pretty fair so no, that's an apt name so the salamander what did he do what did he do <laughs> the most recent thing i think the lizard has said about the salamander is that uh he ran off in search of something called dragon island and he took his entire army and all of his treasure with him um and nobody has seen him since this was like you know 60 years ago or whatever so the lizard who's over 100 years old mm -hmm. his father the salamander could be alive still for all we know could, but he'd be like 150 <laughs> yeah yeah exactly the lizard is i i've been playing him as the most unstable member of our party okay he's this old don quixote-ish man he runs around in like a tattered uh old knights like tabard with a dragon like stitched into it really shittily and at the beginning of the campaign all of the characters were you know delivered a deed to this house that they had inherited all of us at once got different deeds our names on it to the fairy house yeah yeah some dead relative your estranged relative has passed away and uh has left you this property except the lizard who was just you know tooling around in the forest because he's a wandering knight just sort of floated at him in the wind caught it and it said his name on it <laughs> like uh, imagine what that's like you know you're insane you're doddering you're a eunuch you know life is inescapable hell for you and then you just inherit something out of the wind do the other characters think that he's just lying about the deed fluttering they to don't, him they they don't know if he is lying at any point at all <laughs> okay wonderful they have learned to ignore ignore him <laughs> um except sometimes they can't ignore him there's been times where the lizard has uh, the lizard carries a blackjack in his tabard that he'll just grab out and whack people with it's his concealed weapon okay and a couple times i've knocked out our party's doctor um it's a homebrew class yeah but uh, i've knocked him out you know because he's a gnome and he's small and I can just knock and grab. The, our doctor is a pacifist. Okay. And so the lizard uh, brought him on a hunting trip where he forced him into like a animal's nest in the ground and there's this jackalope living in there and so the doctor and this jackalope had this like fight to the death and Jeb's a pacifist so he doesn't want to kill it but they're both at two hit points and so if he doesn't do anything this will kill him and so the lizard just is just like you know outside of the hole poking a torch into it to like smoke out the animal so chaotic neutral yeah, I've actually, I've been running him as neutral evil, which is also chaotic neutral. Yeah, <laughs> neutral evil. <laughs> oh, man. Let's see. What else has he actually done? Despite how bad the lizard is, he hasn't really done all that much in comparison to what people have done to keep him from getting into danger. <laughs> okay. Um. So our party has a goblin paladin named Meek. And Meek is the best character in, in the campaign. He entered the campaign not as a deed holder, 
but as a uh, a common carpenter who uh, came to fix up the house for us. But when the house, so as a paladin, he noticed that the house was completely woven with markings of his god, um, and he's completely entranced by its beauty. Then it stood up and ate his, you know, work crew's uh, cart. And so he was like, I'm coming with you guys. Did Did his work crew also get eaten? Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> sometimes that happens. <laughs> I mean, when you have a, a house that eats other houses, sometimes people get eaten too. Yeah. It's like yeah, a monster exactly. house. Do you remember that movie? Monster I, I do remember Monster House very well. Yeah. It horrified me as a child. I, I was never horrified by movies as a kid, except for like a couple horror movies, maybe. But I, I, I hear a lot of people were really scared of the Dark Crystal as kids. I've never seen it. Really? Yeah. That's my favorite movie. Really? Yeah, it's wonderful. Okay, I know that I've, like, as a fantasy nerd, it's one of those things that I'm supposed to have seen. It's, uh, okay, it can be a little boring if you're not completely into it, Okay. but it's practical effects puppets and, like... Well, yeah, and I'm really big into that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because I saw The Thing in theaters mm. uh, for its 40th anniversary. I might have brought this up in a previous episode, but I, I really like those types of practical practical effects and i remembered watching uh the void have you ever seen that i've never seen the void it's it's this indie movie i think it came out in like 2013 or something but it's very much in that vein of like just hardcore classic lovecraftian horror hell yeah uh it like evil cults and like big multi-faced tentacled skull demons and all that stuff it's it's really good it's about this police officer that finds this uh woman person Mm -hmm. i don't know on the side of the road that's like super injured and he rushes this person to the hospital and it's this rural hospital like okay yeah small town he's the big sheriff in a little, little pond type of deal and then like time might have frozen we're unsure and then the hospital gets just absolutely surrounded by cultists Oh, shit. And then uh, shenanigans occur. It's a really good movie if you're into practical effects and like more kind of gory horror stuff. Okay, yeah. You, you've got to- kind of stuff? Yeah, you've got to check it out. I, I'm a big Evil Dead kind of guy. Okay, yeah. It's it's none of the camp of that, but uh, like- okay. I can do without that. But a lot of the gore. I do really love the camp, though. I think my favorite Evil Dead movie, even though I admit it is probably not the most cinematically masterful of them, but it is Army of Darkness. Because it's a wonderful movie. <laughs> You're the king of Jack and shit. And Jack, Jack left town. <laughs> yeah, no, that I've only ever seen Army of Darkness once. Oh, I, but I watch it. I've definitely gone through phases of watching it kind of religiously. Have you seen um, Ash vs. Evil Dead then, the the TV show? I have not. Is that any good? I really liked the first season. Mm-hmm. The second season was like middling, I would say. Yeah. And I haven't seen the third season yet. Okay. But there are some absolute just gems of moments in that show. Hell yeah. Yeah. I I remember, was it a reboot? The movie that came out a while back? Oh, that horrible one with, what what's his name? From from Deadpool. Ryan Reynolds. Not, not Ryan Reynolds, the other guy. C.J. Miller. Mm. Or T.J. Miller. I don't think I recognized him. I, I never watched that, but I remember watching like nostalgia critic reviews of it <laughs> in like middle school. <laughs> oh, God. They tried to make it more serious. Mm. I remember hearing that like the monster makeup wasn't really as impressive. And they used CGI yeah. as opposed to just the practical effects, which is what makes the first movie. The impression I got of it was it's not like an awful movie, but it's not a good adaptation of the Evil Dead. Yeah, it's fine. 
yeah. it's a fine horror movie. If it was its own thing, it'd be fine. It'd be fine. But a lot of people would say, "Huh, this is kind of like Evil Dead." But they named it Evil Dead. Yeah. Like if you wanted a serious kind of comedic deconstruction of horror, which is what I would say the Evil Dead series kind of is mm-hmm. for the modern day, just watch Cabin in the Woods. Yeah. Like you're not really going to do it better than how Cabin of the Woods did it. That's fair. I've heard good things, but I haven't seen that yet either. Okay. That's like one of the only horror movies that my dad likes. Really? Yeah. Huh. Your dad's like an English professor, right? Yeah, yeah. I imagine (laughs) he has a lot of uh, standards on like what what kind of stuff he likes. Yeah. I mean, heck, he'll hardly ever even read like fantasy or Mm. sci-fi as well. He's read so much Victorian literary fiction because that's his specialty fair enough um that he doesn't he has some very stringent ideas about like literary theory and storytelling practice and all of that stuff but he enjoys that movie hell yeah yeah so approval (laughs) yeah no but if you can get someone who's and i i could go on a rant about the whole teaching of writing and its focus on, oh, yeah. on literary fiction and whatever the fuck. But um, <laughs> if you can get someone like that to enjoy a pulpy kind of out there horror flick, yeah, you're doing something right. Absolutely. Um, what were we talking about? I was talking about the lizard, uh, but we were talking about D and D. Oh, speaking of role playing. <laughs> okay. Uh, have you ever played House on Haunted or Betrayal? I wondered why you looked that yeah, up. Betrayal at House on the Hill. I think I have once, but I didn't really pay much attention to it. Okay. I used to be really big into this game. So the the conceit of the story is that you and your buddies play a character. Mm -hmm. Like there's this set group of characters that you can play who, for whatever reason, have entered into this spooky old mansion. Okay. I remember that much. Yeah. On on top of a spooky mansion hill. Of course. As spooky mansions tend to be on. And whenever you enter into a new room, you have to pull a tile out Mm. of this deck of tiles, and that's the new room in the house. Okay. So you're building the house as you... uh, As you explore it. As you explore it, yeah. All right. Because of this, there's like all of these different triggers and all, all this, these different mechanics, kind of like how... It is in Cabin in the Woods mm-hmm. for different horror scenarios that can occur. Okay. And there's also an expansion. So there's 50 in the base game. And then there's an expansion. And I, I mean, I personally, if you're going to play it, you got to get the expanded version because it adds like a meta narrative to the story as well. Oh, nice. Yeah. So what will start happening is like you and a few buddies will play multiple campaigns over a period of time and then the people that play multiple campaigns will start getting clued in on like the wider story that's going on Oh, okay it's really cool hell yeah i used to play this game religiously with a few friends in college but eventually something will happen that triggers like a an end game event Mm -hmm. right like the horror scenario everything goes to shit and the horror really presents itself yeah Usually, not always, but usually, a character gets informed that they have become the bad guy. Oh, that's fun. That's why it's called Betrayal at House on the Hill. Okay. And so then the scenario dictates how everyone can win. And if you're the bad guy, you usually win by like getting this win state or like killing everyone else. Yeah, yeah. And if you're the good guy, you got to figure out who the bad guy is. And it's really, really cool. 
Hell yeah. And, and there's so many different scenarios that you can really just have. There, there's so many possibilities for the type of game that you're going to have. Hell yeah. Yeah, I might have to try that, that game again, actually. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of, of this game that my stepdad is really into. Uh, it's called Scythe. It's got this really cool painted art style, but it's a post-apocalyptic game where you pay, you play as an entire faction, and everyone's trying to get to the center of the map to get to like this huge factory. Okay. Can't really say very much else about the game because I'm I'm not you know super familiar with it, but the generative play and stuff like that yeah. reminds me of it. Well, I don't have. I think yeah, else. I think I think that might be. That might be the episode for today, folks. As always, it's Tuesday. I'm Tuesday. And I am Sherman. Thank you for listening. Uh, you can find me Tuesday at IamTuesday at YouTube.com. And and you can find me, Sherman, at SaintToral at Instagram.com. What uh, else do you say? Uh, just that it is Tuesday. <laughs> it, is, Tuesday. it is Tuesday, and I am Tuesday. And I am Sherman. Thank you so much, and goodbye. Good night.